Please turn in your Bibles to the book of James, which is near the end of the Bible, coming after the book of Hebrews. It is a short book, only five chapters long. <clears throat> this morning we're going to return to our study of James as we continue our short break from the book of Proverbs. As has already been mentioned, as we are on the verge of a new year, and while the internet and social media, I'm sure this weekend, are abuzz with predictions for 2024 and resolutions to change and become a better person, we will find that James also would compel us to change and to resolve to do better but not by making promises that we can't keep or pulling ourselves up by the bootstrap. In contrast to our culture, James directs our gaze first backwards. He would urge us to look back to ancient paths and old ways, ways that reveal the timeless, the timeless wisdom of God wisdom and grace that are found in the Bible that when applied set us on a path forward a path of joy as God's people so please pray with me <clears throat> father this morning we ask that you would open our eyes and our hearts and our minds to the truth found in your word Lord, that we might have grace to put into practice what we hear. And so, Lord, we ask that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your word. In your son's name we pray. Amen. I've titled this message, Mercy Triumphs Over Judgment. Mercy Triumphs Over Judgment. And we're going to be looking at James chapter 2. Verses 1 through 13. James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Now, during my more than 30 years in medical practice, I have treated, I've treated a wide variety of patients, including the very wealthy and the very poor. I've cared for the likes of a billionaire oil executive in a luxurious hospital VIP suite and homeless beggars and drug addicts in medical clinics in inner city slums. You know what I've found over the years? Even though both are made in the image of God and equally require nutrition and water for survival, and both are subject to disease and illness, there are distinctions that are imposed on them by society. And one distinction that I've observed and I've experienced is how society treats them when they get sick. Every society has standards by which they determine those that are privileged and those that are not. Those who receive medical treatment and those who do not. Even though American society was founded on the principle of impartiality, all men are created equal, equal justice under the law. 
the wealthy and the powerful are revered and given certain privileges. While the less educated and the poor and the disenfranchised are deprived. <clears throat> Despite my education as a medical doctor, there resides in me a tendency to view and to treat these two groups of needy people differently. So I find myself asking, what kind of a doctor do I want to be? What kind of a person do I want to be? I think if we're honest, all of us are prone to show preference or partiality based on people's appearance, their level of education, their social status, and even what others will think of us. And in this country, well, especially based on wealth. In America, wealth is revered. Even for James and these first century Christians to whom he's writing, wealth is clearly a privileged status in their society. We will see this morning in our text that James addresses the sinful tendency in each of us, each of us to show partiality and illustrates, illustrates how the sin of partiality goes much deeper than just a mere contradiction. In fact, James turns the definition of poverty and wealth on its head. So follow along as I read our text, starting in verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing, and you say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves? and become judges with evil thoughts. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all, of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become trans a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy 
triumphs over judgment. So I've divided our text into four sections, and the first section is called Partiality Seems Normal. Partiality Seems Normal, and this is verses 1 through 4. As we study the, this section of James' letter, we need to remember who James is writing to. He's writing to Christians who have fled from their homes as exiles, many of them living under persecution and in poverty. Verse 1, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Similar to the way he started chapter 1, if you'll remember, James wastes no time in giving a command. My brothers, show no partiality, or my brothers and sisters, show no partiality. The NIV translates it, don't show favoritism. As he does throughout his letter, James continues in chapter 2 to stress the importance of putting into practice what one believes, being consistent in our Christian walk, as he warns against being that double-minded person that he described in chapter 1, who's unstable in all their ways. It's also no coincidence that the subject matter in chapter 2 follows James' exhortation after chapter 1 to be a doer of the word and not merely hearers who deceive themselves. So what's the big deal? Why does James begin with such an emphatic statement? Those who profess faith in Jesus Christ are not to play favorites because God himself is not partial. You'll remember when Samuel was called by the Lord to anoint King Saul's successor from Jesse's household in 1 Samuel 16. Samuel's initial inclination was to pick Jesse's oldest, tallest, and most impressive looking son. Yet, it was David the youngest and least assuming whom the Lord had chosen. The Lord does not see as man sees, God said to Samuel. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. As doers of the word, God's people are to imitate him. Now it would seem in this first verse that James has personal knowledge of this Christian community's behavior. The Greek word he uses for partiality is plural, suggesting that this is not just an isolated incident of favoritism, or more like, it's more likely <clears throat> several, inst excuse me, several instances or even a pattern that he's observed. We should also notice at the end of verse 1, <clears throat> as James describes Jesus as the Lord of glory. By identifying Jesus in his exalted state, he's reminding readers of what true greatness is. And there's only one individual who deserves special honor. And it's not the wealthy visitor that they're about to meet. Verse 2. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, 
and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Now we can see in this illustration that James provides a vivid picture with a lot of detail. A gold ring, fine clothing. He does so to indicate the kind of partiality that is forbidden. <clears throat> Favoring the rich and discriminating against the poor. Even though this example may seem exaggerated, it likely, ref likely reflects two life, true life circumstances and instances. We can see that the readers are presented with two people walking into a Christian service, not unlike our own. They're probably visitors as they're told where to sit or where to go when they come in. The description of the, of the man with the gold ring and fine clothing indicates a rich person. In that day, clothing was shown to display someone's wealth. To James' readers, the visitor's status would have been unmistakable. His attire would be considered lavish. Today, if this person were to show up, perhaps they would drive up in a Maserati in a designer suit wearing a Rolex watch. But why emphasize the extravagant appearance of the visitor? James' vivid description is meant to remind the reader how partiality reacts to externals rather than that which is of real value. Now, in contrast to the fine clothing of the rich visitor, James describes the dress of the other as shabby, or as one commentator puts it, rags that are stained and tattered. James' description is fitting for what we would call a homeless person or a beggar. <clears throat> but we shouldn't miss the intentional and contrasting description that James provides, emphasizing the external appearance over the heart as he emphasizes their socioeconomic status. And now in verse three, we see that the members of this Christian assembly are promptly attentive to the rich man. He's given special attention and directed to a preferred seat or a place of honor. They tell the homeless beggar, stand in the back, out of the way, or sit on the floor. The rich man has a seat of honor and a stool for his feet, and the beggar must sit on the floor. Being ordered to sit at the feet of one's host would have been insulting, highlighting the discrimination. While the illustration may seem exaggerated to us or even to James' readers, the intent is to shock his readers and to illustrate how far these Jewish believers had strayed from the Mosaic law as well as from their pure and undefiled Christian faith. He goes on further to describe their behavior in verse four. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? His comparison to judges is likely a reference to Leviticus where the Lord commands his people in verse 15 of Leviticus 19 
Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. After presenting his readers with this obvious example of favoritism toward the rich, James condemns their behavior for what it is. When Christians treat the poor and the rich differently, their discrimination is sinful. Rather than being hosts or servants of their guests, they're behaving like judges, a place that is reserved for God alone, who sees the heart and judges righteously. But not only are they judges, they're judges with evil thoughts. They're being influenced by externals, primarily the appearance and the wealth of their rich guest. James exposes the motive of their sinful behavior as being greedy and self-centered, trying to benefit themselves by flattering their wealthy visitor. One theologian put it this way, like a corrupt judge, they're positioning themselves for some type of future payoff. He's basically calling them out. But James isn't finished. He continues his condemnation of their behavior now on theological grounds. And this brings us to our second point. God weighs people on a different scale. God weighs people on a different scale. And this is verses 5 and the first part of verse 6. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. To demonstrate how quickly his readers have forgotten their position before God, James reminds them of God's favorable disposition to the poor. Has not God chosen those who are poor. The Lord's care for the economically disadvantaged is a theme that we find throughout Scripture. This congregation's unwelcoming response to the poor man is contrary to God's loving and gracious disposition. But James has more in mind than just material poverty. By drawing a parallel between those that are poor from a material standpoint and those who are spiritually poor. His description in these verses is revealing. While they may be poor in the world, they are rich in faith, heirs of the kingdom, and those who love God. Being materially poor doesn't qualify you to be an heir of the kingdom. James is speaking of those who realize their poverty of spirit, their need for a savior. I think we can hear the voice of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount when he taught that God blesses those who recognize their spiritual poverty. Matthew 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But James goes on in the first part of verse 6 with this stinging rebuke. But you have dishonored the poor. In contrast to God's favor, these Christians have shown, shown dishonor. 
up to this point, James has compared these believers, this church, this community, to judges with evil thoughts. And then he shows how their behavior is in direct contrast to God's heart and his favor for the poor. Next, he appeals to their common sense. And this brings us to section three. If you live by partiality, you'll die by partiality. If you live by partiality, you'll die by partiality. This is the second half of verse six and verse seven. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? James asks them three piercing questions. Is it not the rich who oppress you? Is it not the rich who are dragging you into court? And in verse 7, is it not the rich who are blaspheming the noble name of Jesus by which you are called? He begins with a practical point. Why show favoritism to someone whose only desire is to exploit you or take advantage of you? As one commentator puts it, how foolish to fawn over one's oppressors. And if this reprimand were not enough, James points out that it is the wealthy who are dishonoring the very one who called them, the one to whom they belong as God's chosen. It is the same people from whom you're trying to win favor that are slandering the Lord who has shown you favor. This is the greatest contradiction of all. But it only gets worse as James goes on to expose their ultimate moral failure. This is our fourth section. Which law will you obey? Which law will you obey? And this takes us from verse 8 to the end of this section, verse 13. Starting at verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. James concludes his appeal, his argument, pardon me, by appealing to the second greatest commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's called the royal law because it is the supreme law under which every other commandment that governs human relationships falls. James undoubtedly is calling to mind Jesus' response to the Pharisees' question in the Gospels when they said, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? In his answer, Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Showing partiality is not just a matter of social indiscretion or an inconsequential 
offense. It is a sin, breaking a clear command of Scripture, making those who do so transgressors of the law. James goes on in verse 10 and 11 to point out that even if one keeps and obeys all of God's law, yet violates just one command, that person is guilty of all the law. Verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Some of James' readers might have been thinking that the sin of partiality was less significant than other sins. But he makes it clear that to fail to love one's neighbor puts a person on the same level as adulterers and murderers. One commentator describes it like this. It takes one law to make a liar, one lie, excuse me, to make a liar, one adulterous act to make an adulterer, one theft to make a thief, one murder to make a murderer, and only one broken law to make a lawbreaker. The same evil act that causes us to break one of God's laws will, in different circumstances, cause us to break the others. To break the law at any point is to rebel against the God who spoke the law. So now we are left with a terrifying reality. We have all transgressed the law and we stand condemned. No reader of James' letter and no one listening this morning can stand before holy God. But as we continue, James doesn't leave his readers to wallow in condemnation. Verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Quickly, he reminds them, they are forgiven and in Christ are under the law of liberty. Instead of judgment, they're forgiven and freed from the penalty and the power of sin. In other words, as you are tempted to show favoritism, act like people Christ has forgiven and freed to show genuine love. And then James ends with a word of warning and a word of grace in verse 13. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumph over judgment. In the first part of this verse, James warns that judgment will be without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. And his warning reminds us, it should remind us, of Jesus' parable in Luke 16, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Jesus describes in that parable a rich man wearing very expensive clothing, living in luxury, and feasting extravagantly every day. But right outside his gate in plain sight, who he sees every day, is a poor man named Lazarus. Ignored by the rich man, 
Lazarus is covered with sores and penniless. Lazarus isn't asking to eat at the rich man's table, only to eat the crumbs that fall to the ground. But he's denied even these. When both die, Lazarus is carried by the angels to Abraham's side, where he enjoys fellowship and receives mercy. The rich man, refusing to extend mercy, is tormented in Hades. Verse 13 ends with a word of grace that is equally to the point. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Where does this leave us? How do we respond to James? I think like those first century saints, we are equally vulnerable to the sin of partiality. I believe that James would have us take a careful look at our own lives and that of Grace Church. If mercy triumphs over judgment for me, it will triumph over judgment through me. As a medical doctor, if I'm honest, I am more comfortable caring for that distinguished businessman than that street beggar. I'm more likely to be attentive to the patient who compliments me than to the confused and angry patients suffering with dementia. While we as a church excel at showing hospitality, we must ask ourselves, how is favoritism manifested? What is our heart attitude toward people that are on the fringes of society, the poor, the broken, the mentally unstable, or others who make us uncomfortable because they lack certain social skills. Do you find yourself paying more attention to individuals who are like you, or those from whom you might gain some type of social advantage? How do we respond to the stranger who walks in the door? Someone who's of a different social class, from a different country, speaks a different language, Someone who doesn't look like us or have our same mannerisms. These are important questions that we must ask ourselves. As James warns us, lives of favoritism are lives in jeopardy. If you're like me, when faced with this reality, this contradiction, my temptation is to try harder and to love better perhaps even to earn God's favor. And if that's our response to James, if that's what you're thinking this morning, I'm afraid we missed the point. We can all identify as a member of this first century church, but I don't think they are the primary character in the story. The reality is, uh, 
in our sinful state. Each of us is that poor beggar. Having no hope, trapped, lost in sin, powerless to change. So I think the more crucial question we must ask is, how do I resolve this problem? Because to the Lord, like that beggar, we were repulsive in our sin. But this, my friends, is our hope. Despite our unloveliness and our repulsiveness, Jesus Christ loved us and gave himself for us. For if while we were his enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Though he was rich, for our sake he became poor, so that by his poverty we might become rich. Jesus Christ died on the cross and was raised the third day, so that my sins and your sins could be forgiven. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Without the power and the transforming work of the gospel, we cannot love. Each of us has failed miserably. So rather than try harder, we must run to the cross, cry out to God for mercy. In the words of this 19th century hymn, down at the cross where my Savior died, down where for cleansing from sin I cried, there to my heart was the blood applied. I am so wondrously saved from sin. Jesus so sweetly abides within, there at the cross where he took me in. For mercy to triumph through us, it must first triumph in us. And this is our hope, that God has given his love to us, as Paul writes in Romans. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. It's not in our own strength, it's not in our power, but by God's grace and through his Holy Spirit, that we're empowered to love as Christ loved. As the Apostle Paul reminds us, we love because he first loved us. Please pray with me. Father, in the words of David as he prayed in Psalm 51, have mercy on us, O God, According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out our transgressions. Wash us thoroughly from our iniquity and cleanse us from our sin. Lord, this morning we thank you that in Jesus Christ we are forgiven for our sin of partiality and we're made righteous before you. Lord, we ask that you would seal the words of the scripture on our hearts and minds. And Lord, give us strength and grace to obey. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.